Welcome to Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Eleveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Kos The Brief. It's our weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Molitsis. I am here with Carrie Eleveld. We are your host today. Carrie, we're going to be talking. What are we going to be talking about today? We're going to be talking about Ukraine a little bit. Little, little bit of my, Ukraine. My whole world is Ukraine. Right, right. We're going to, we're going to, yeah, going to get an update on where what the new phase of Ukraine is from you, none other me. than Marcos Melitzas. Yeah, yeah. And then we're going to be talking about Wisconsin. Right. Yeah, with Ben Wickler, the chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party or the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, I think they formally say. But anyway. Yeah. Wisconsin is sort of ground zero in our effort to expand, to hold and expand our majority in the United States Senate. Ron Johnson, the best friend Vladimir Putin ever had, is up (laughs) for reelection. He's unapologetically um, out there. Uh, Yeah. he, He is like the Freedom Caucus of the Senate. And Wisconsin just had a round of elections. And so that's what Ben is going to come on and talk about, because as doom and gloom, as everybody seems to be about November elections, there's actually some really hopeful, good signs in a low turnout, middle of no time election where where uh, where you would expect the party that is most motivated most engaged would win easily and so things didn't quite turn out that bleak for democrats right um i don't know if i'm underselling our results but but that's what we're going to be talking about they were they were pretty good results and i think he's not only gonna you know we're gonna run over some of the results with him but also i think there were some uh pretty good messaging take takeaways like you know, after Virginia, everybody's like, oh, this is what's going to be the hot thing. And, you know, next year's midterms and, you know, oh, Republicans are going to have the advantage on, you know, education and whatever. Well, we're, let, let's let's test that out in Wisconsin later with with Ben Wickler. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, as much as we've been talking about things like Ukraine and e- even the messaging, it's all really building up towards November because this is an existential election for the future of our nation. This is our last chance to get a sort of some padding in the Senate because the next two cycles are actually the seats that are that are in that are up for for in 2024 and 2026 are places like the Dakotas and Wyoming. Like there's not a lot of good pickup opportunities and there's a lot of places we can actually lose ground places like Montana. So it is absolutely critical that we win an expanded filibuster-proof majority. And at this point, filibuster-proof majority is 52, enough to mm-hmm. override Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema with a VP. And it's not just about picking up seats this year in places like Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, uh, maybe Florida. Um, it's not just that, but it's also if we, if we can win a expanded majority in the Senate and get rid of the filibuster, and if we can hold the House... Then things like D.C. statehood are on the table. Puerto Rico statehood are on the table. Voting rights reform are on the table. There's a lot of things that can dramatically impact the Democrats' ability to have a more representative Senate. Because we're at the point right now, I don't have the numbers in front of me, Kerry, but it's like the, the 50 Republicans in the U.S. Senate represent like 32% of the American population. Yeah, It is so lopsided in favor of these rural, small, extremely conservative, extremely white uh, states that uh, it, it, it's not a democratic institution. And you throw in the filibuster and forget it. Absolutely right, right. forget it. It's got to exactly. go. So anyway, we'll talk about Wisconsin because it's very, very Let's, important. We're going to get back to that, okay? Because yeah. I, I think we've got some good stuff. I actually heard Wickler interviewed somewhere else because we always like to get the interview second uh, here. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But I did. I did. I heard him interviewed on Pod Save America. And uh, and I was like, oh, man, we got to have him. So uh, he's going to come. But listen, we, it, we've entered, you know, between last 
Tuesday when we were on, and now we've entered what seems to be sort of a different phase of the Ukraine war. And I'd like to, you know, pick your brain about that a little bit, since this is like, you know, consuming you almost 24 seven. What, what, I mean, the basics that I understand are that, you know, Russia decided it was going to retool it was gonna, you know, pull back from its like three border assaults um, that that fizzled basically, um, and then concentrate its forces in the east and hopefully, you know, and then maybe eventually the south. And then they promised they were gonna have this like major onslaught in the east, and it was. So anyway, take bring us up to speed on where you think we are with, with what what is. What is Vladimir Putin trying to accomplish now? Do we know? Yeah. So the original and, and you can go back. Uh, there's been a couple episodes uh, of the show that we've talked about Ukraine. The original problem with Russia's uh, battle plan, tactics, strategy was that they invaded on four major axes. So they came in from the north the northeast, the east and the south. Then each one of those axes splintered into multiple fronts. So they were attacking at around 12 different locations all at once. They went in with 180,000 troops, which maybe seems like a lot. But keep in mind that Ukraine is the size of Texas, has 40 million people and 5 million have left, women and children mostly, because men weren't allowed to leave, uh, military fighting age men. But it's a big freaking country. It's got more people in Texas, about the same size. 180,000 was always too few. Now, this is where people don't really get it. It's when you see 180,000, that's not 180,000 fighters. Only about 15% of an army actually pushes a button or pulls a trigger that fires anything. That's infantry, armor, artillery. The rest are truck drivers moving supplies intelligence people, uh, their, their mechanics, their medics. I mean, there's a whole 85%. So 180,000, you're looking about 15% were actually combat troops, only about 25,000 yeah. actual troops trying to take this. It was never going to work, right? Yeah. So after losing 10, 15,000 soldiers in this really ridiculously stupid battle plan, and I think they want it all in shock. Oh, no, Russians are coming from everywhere. Let's capitulate. That was the idea. It didn't work. So Russia's like, okay, we got we to gotta recalibrate. So they pulled everything out of the north and the northeast. They called it a strategic. We always meant to do this, right? No, it was a humbling, embarrassing, humiliating failure. And so they pulled out tails between their legs. And supposedly the new plan was like, now we, now we get, now we're going to mass all our troops, like you said, Carrie. And we're going to focus on one location and we're going to smash Ukraine's defenses in eastern Ukraine. And eastern Ukraine is relevant because there is a separatist breakaway region that that Russia has essentially created and occupied since 2014. So eight years. And so now the excuse is we need to protect people in eastern uh, Ukraine in this Donbas region. So that was the idea um, all along. I've been writing about this night and day, right? And, and I was like, no, Russia has shown no ability to mass troops. They can't do a mass scale attack. They can't do what's called combined arms. Combined arms, it's when you use infantry, armor, artillery, air, all together to create this sort of mass fighting force. Armor by itself is vulnerable to infantry with anti-tank weapons. Infantry by itself is vulnerable to artillery, just shredding them on the battlefield. Artillery is by itself is vulnerable to air helicopters and fighter jets that's why you got to work all together russia can't do that so i was like no nah, they're not going to do it and so last night i took stock of the current situation and they're back up to 12 fronts carrie they didn't learn the lesson they're no, back up to 12 are you kidding me where back, where where are their so 12 fronts is it a splinter is it a splinter on the east or what so what there's is it? There's, you know, we went from four major axes. Now we're down to three major axes. Whoa. But each one of those. So you have the southern front, which is the city of Kherson. And they're trying to push up to uh, Krivyi, and, uh, which is strategically unimportant. 
but is the birthplace of Volodymyr Zelensky. So there seems to be a propaganda desire to take this unstrategic city in the middle of the country. They're not going to get there. They don't have the troops. The city's like 800,000 people. It's just literally, it's just not going to happen, but they're wasting effort trying to get there. They're trying to push back up to Mykolaiv, also north of Kherson. Instead of just defending, they're on the offensive. They're in Mariupol. They've been in Mariupol since day one, and they're still stuck there. They've claimed that the cities that they've taken the city, they haven't taken the city. And that's uh, where, can I just say, that's where that giant factory or whatever is, like, is it like a bond shelter or a factory? Is, is, is that in Mari- Mariupol? A, yeah, that's exactly right. It's a steel factory that was literally built, designed to withstand a nuclear attack. So not only is it, is it five or six square miles large, it's the size of a, of a, and it's what you would imagine a steel factory to look like, you know, warehouses and big pipes and like a million places for people to hide. And that's, and that's where, that's where Putin couple thousand, was like, we're going to, yeah. we're going to attack. We're going to take over. We're going to do this onslaught. And then he was like, actually, we're just going to surround it and make sure that a fly can't escape. I mean, like that was, that was like what he said. was direct quote was like, not even a fly will escape from there. Really? Because yeah. a second ago you were going to take that thing, and now you're, I don't no, know, you're not going to let flies escape? Carrie, plot twist, they're still assaulting it, so nothing has changed. But there's five levels of tunnels underneath, and these tunnels reach out to outside the factory. So not only did you know defenders stuff it with, with uh, ammunition and food and water, and, but they're able to pop up outside of the factory and wage guerrilla warfare against, against these, these troops. So instead of moving these troops out of Mariupol, like they supposedly were going to, they haven't moved anybody out. They can't, they they're pinned down. Then you have the, the sort of Donbas, you have Kherson up in Northeast. They bypassed it because they can't take the city, but they're the supply lines into the Donbas region run through this town, right? So Ukraine's just sitting there lobbing artillery, and taking out convoy after convoy after convoy. Then you have a, the Izium salient. The salient in military terms is when an army pushes into enemy territory and is now surrounded by all sides because it's like a thumb, right, into mm-hmm. enemy territory. This is Izium um, salient. And instead of pushing south, which would you know, attempt to cut off some of these troops in the east, Ukrainian troops in the east, they're attacking south and east and west and northwest. It's, it's an absolute mess. Like, there's no real strategy. And then this Donbas front, which is about 120, 130 miles of front, they're attacking on the entire front, right? These little piddly attacks. And some of them are grinding Ukraine's defenses down. I'm not going to say that they're not gaining, but I'm talking in two weeks they've gained about three miles, and they've lost dozens of vehicles and likely hundreds of, of soldiers to pick up a kilometer here, a kilometer there. So it's a sort of attrition, human waves. It's absolutely bizarre. So this idea that they were going to master this one major offensive, they, they just didn't. Now they're attacking again. Like I said, I counted and they're back to 12 different areas of attack. So they didn't learn a damn thing. Uh, there's more troops sitting in the east than there were before. So at least they got that. But at the cost of giving up their attack on Kiev and the embarrassment and the failure, and then they're just repeating the same failures from earlier in the war again. So obviously, I'm, I'm very bullish on Ukraine's chances. I'm um, sort of the, the human toll is, is, you know, it's devastating. And Russia, I mean, what, so for example, Ukraine can still move uh, supplies, troops, um, food, ammo to the front line via rail trains. Those should have been taken out day one of the war. But Russia would rather bomb a civilian apartment complex and kill a mom and a three-month-old child than to actually do something that might help them win the war, which is stop the flow of, of now NATO weapons flooding into the front lines. It I is mind-boggling. I do not understand. I mean, you know, it's horrific and it's totally inhumane and just on a human level it's hard to even comprehend but on a strategic level it just makes no sense i I just don't like you know i mean because that's like they have the air power to do that do they not do they not have the air power to do that i mean on paper 
They did. But what we're finding out, Carrie, is that what they had on paper and what they actually had in reality are two different things. And the reason is grift corruption and the oligarchs and everybody on down from the supply sergeant pilfering supplies to buy, you know, to have a little dacha, you know, for for his wife to the officer who who uh, no, no, the, the, the supply sergeant's just buying vodka. The officer, right. you know, he's got his, you know, little dacha for for his wife or girlfriend or both. Uh, then you got the oligarchs who have their Italian villas and their super yachts. That money came from somewhere, and apparently, it came in large part from the military because nobody expected a large scale war. I mean, this, the whole notion that NATO's a threat. Nobody was worried about NATO because NATO wasn't going to invade Russia. Russia's got nuclear just, weapons. Right. It was just not even remotely in the cards. And yeah, Russia would do. You know, they would meddle in, in you know, in, in uh, Georgia, uh, not our Georgia, their Georgia. They also meddled in our Georgia, but Georgia by, you know, in, in Central Asia, Georgia. And they meddled in Moldova and they meddled in Ukraine and they meddled in Tajikistan and they meddled in Kazakhstan. And, but you drop a couple thousand paratroopers here and there. You can maintain that. Right. But this idea that they were actually going to maintain 300,000 soldiers worth of equipment and training and all that good stuff just didn't happen. So when you look at the at the Air Force, um, I mean, one of the funniest things I've seen in, in the war in Ukraine was a Russian artillery gun with a sign saying, do not drink the antifreeze. It will kill you. Oh, God. OK. All right. So let me can I can I ask a few questions here? Um, I they don't drank, know. They drank their equipment away. They, I mean, <laughs> that's, that's the moral of that's, that story. <laughs> that's sad. That's sad. Uh, and desperate and sad. But anyway, so um, do you think that they have, that Putin has enough, like, you know, artil- artillery, weaponry, et cetera, to continue this on indefinitely? Or, it, or is he already in danger of running short of what he he needs to just continue, you know, brutalizing Ukraine and the civilian population there along with, you know, the fighters too. But yeah, the answer to that question is, is he does and he doesn't. Um, the modern up-to-date equipment that he started the war with, Ukraine now has more tanks and they're gaining on armored infantry vehicles and artillery now, at the same time, you have a lot of NATO equipment flowing in. You have American artillery. You have Polish tanks. Uh, Slovakia sent a bunch of artillery and tanks of their own. So Ukraine's army is growing. And they have the troops. They just don't have the equipment. So it's just there, there's 300,000 reservists sitting out in western Ukraine just desperate to get engaged. They're training. They're not being wasted. They're, they're, they're right. training up. right? But they're waiting for equipment to, to be able to join the fight. So... As this drags on for the next couple of months, Ukraine's only going to get stronger. Russia's problem is they have, they supposedly had 10,000 tanks sitting in storage. Turns out that, no, they didn't because that would, that it takes money to maintain things. And so on the spreadsheet, they say, yeah, yeah, we maintained it. And then they went off and spent the money on dachas and, and vodka. So the stuff has been coming in and they even opened up and like tanks had stolen engines. So it's not even that, let's not maintain it. No, let's actually steal this stuff and then sell it into the black market so, uh, so we can pilfer because we're never going to come in. Nobody's going to look into the storage tank ever. So theoretically, they have more, but they're, they're old. I mean, these are like 40-year-old tanks, 50-year-old tanks. They're not maintained. They're in terrible shape. And, and so some of these will make their way to the front line. They'll be able to cobble together a certain number, but they are actually becoming less, their equipment's becoming older and less capable while Ukraine's right. equipment is actually NATO stock. It's getting better, getting higher better, tech. Better. I think, did I hear President Biden say that with this latest shipment of arms, that there would be like 10 howitzers for every Russian tank there were that Ukraine, there was, the howitzers are the ones, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, not, not quite. There's, there's, there's 90 American, uh, they're, they're the M777 howitzers, M777, how artillery people call them. There's 90 of those and Canada's throwing in a bunch and some other countries are throwing in their artillery as well. And it's this NATO caliber. So it's a different caliber than Russian stock. 
And so it creates some logistical challenges because now you have to supply Ukraine's existing Soviet howitzers with NATO. But this transition is happening. And now that we realize this war is going to last for a while, it's okay. Like, okay, yeah, we can develop these new logistic lines and train Ukrainians on how to use Western gear. And they're being trained on Western armor. They're being trained on Western infantry vehicles. So it's, it's happening. So the, the moral of that story is that Ukraine is getting stronger and more armed up. Yeah. While, while Russia is, you know, is getting weaker and using older equipment and doesn't seem to have, I don't know if they've formed any partners, you know, with, with China or anywhere else that can supply them things. Um, that, right that's now, a whole nother segue. But are, do yeah. they have access to other like. They don't. And what's happening yeah. is that that. Um, their modern weapons use things like microchips and all of this stuff is, is now part of the embargo against, you know, and sanctions against uh, Russia. So they can't get the equipment. A lot of it, I mean, they've been breaking open some of this, you know, Russian equipment and you see German parts and Italian parts and French parts. So they, they were, these weapon systems were built with European technology and know-how and now they don't have access to that. Can China fill some of that void in the long, long term, but it's not going to happen overnight and China, believe it or not, doesn't seem particularly interested in busting the sanction regimen. Like they, they're not buying Russian oil. And so as much as they make a well, ma- China, make has noise- ec- China has economic interests. I mean, they don't want, you know, too. they they want to be involved in the world, mar- in the global world market. Yeah. And, you know, and Russia and Putin are, have become completely isolated. So how yeah. how, how much do you want to hug? you know, what is, what is, appears to be a failing venture, basically. Yeah, China's not happy. They signed this friendship agreement right before the war started. Now, China didn't know because the U.S. went and told China, like, this is happening. And China's like, no, we wouldn't know if something like that was going to (laughs) happen. And so I think China's feeling a little burned right now. Yeah. And uh, so, so they're not, they're not helping implement sanctions but they're also not busting them and so it, it's an actual true weird neutrality and it's, it's actually given the, the circumstances it's the best we can hope for and it's actually not a bad situation so russia is its economy is isolated and it can't rebuild the uh the the military equipment it's losing it can re- maybe refurbish some of their old crap but it's it's literally crap as we've seen it on the battlefield right. Right. And, you know, in terms of an economy, I mean, I think the West very much wants to help. And that's part of what President Biden is trying to do, rebuild the Ukraine economy so that, you know, or rebuild Ukraine's economy so that it can, you know, it, it, it is part, it gets in more and more integrated with the West. And they, again, grow stronger while Russia, you know, seems like it's just going to continue and growing weaker. So I, I don't want to, I could ask you a million more questions about this, to be honest. I like, I had three questions written down and I've gotten to one of them. But, um, <laughs> I talked too out, much. One out of three ain't bad. One out of three ain't bad. So, but I do think that we should switch over, switch gears, because, yeah. you know, we're talking about fighting for democracy one place. And I mean, we're talking about, you know, a, a, a incredibly heroic battle being waged by the Ukrainian people. Um, but we got to we gotta fight the battle here against author- authoritarianism, against autocracy here at home too. And Wisconsin is going to be a major part of that this fall. Um, of course, it's, you know, it's one of these Rust Belt states that just seems to constantly be a swing state. You know, President Biden won it by just a little over 20,000 votes. There, you know, there's all sorts of conspiracy theories that have taken hold there that are sort of ripping apart the Republican Party in the latest. They, you know, Trump is pushing Trump and John Eastman, the lawyer who who convinced Trump that Vice President Mike Pence could, de- you know, could, could block certification. Right. Block certification. Steal the election, yeah. yeah. Steal the election. Right. Which was completely unconstitutional. There was no legal basis for it. Anyway, he's pushing a conspiracy theory that, that, you know, that, that Wisconsin, that state lawmakers, I mean, he's pushing this in multiple states, but that state lawmakers could decertify uh, Biden's win there. And that, and that, that has taken hold in Wisconsin. It's completely, you know, tearing apart the Republican Party. The assembly speaker, Robin Voss, who is a Republican and 
and tried to, you know, facilitate what, you know, just really to appease Trump. He said, okay, we'll launch an investigation, kind of an Arizona style, not really an audit, but an investigation to see if there was, you know, fraud, widespread fraud. And it's turned up nothing. It's cost, you know, an estimated $680,000 and that's of taxpayer funding and, and may end up costing more. He's trying to shut it down. President Trump is, I mean, sorry. The, the, re- former, the Republican right? speaker is trying to shut it down. He's trying to shut it down now because the, the guy that he enlisted to do it is like, has made a total mess of it. And it's costing, it hasn't turned up anything. It's costing taxpayers a lot of money. And it is one of those cases where, you know, they thought they could appease Trump by launching this investigation and then they would just move on from it. But instead, it's just it, it's fueled a whole, you know, bunch of election deniers and political opportunists. You know, some people who deeply believe the election was stolen, even though there's no evidence and there's never been any evidence and they haven't done anything in court and they haven't found any widespread fraud. But then there's also the political opportunists who are trying to ride this to, you know, becoming governor of Wisconsin and things like that. So um, it's really tearing the party apart. And and there's a lot of Republicans there sort of, you know, may maybe more middle of the road Republicans that are like, oh, my God, this should be our year. You know, historically, all the indicators are pointing in our directions. The president, President Biden has low approval ratings. And, uh, you know, it's it that the the party in the White House should be losing just a ton of seats. And we've got this disaster on our hands. You know, the same thing is happening in Michigan. Same thing. I mean, it's just like it's Trump everywhere. But so here's the basics. We're going to have Ben Wickler on. Right. Who's the we talked about him before. He's the uh, chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party. Um, they recently had local elections where Democrats really held their own in a supposed red wave environment, right? They won more than they lost in Wickler's telling of it. And, um, and especially, you know, in the seats that they engaged in, where they, where they were able to engage voters, they were able to, you know, do some get out the vote operation. They were, you know, this type of thing. And, um, and on top of that, so I just I want to I want to give the basic overall of the state right now, because the Marquette Law School had a sorry, you have a question. So I'm just going to say very, very, very quick. Don't yep. think Ben Wickler, Democratic Party. Oh, he's a Democratic Party person. Oh, no, ben yeah. actually came from the same uh, from the same world that I came out of and Daily Coast came out. Of. He's, he was a Netroots activist. He's on the ground kind of person. He's definitely not what you would expect being a Democratic Party. He's an activist that ended up running the party of a major swing state and this idea that, oh no, you don't want crazy left-wing activists running things. We kind of do, it turns out, at least in Wisconsin, it's worked out great. So I just wanted to to quantify him because we're not going to have time to really get into his background. I just want to say he's like legit. Yeah, he's legit. And he's there and he's kicking ass. He's a grassroots uh, organizer at heart. And, and the, and just to, just so people have a, a framework for where we are in Wisconsin right now, the Marquette Law School uh, put out a poll in um, in late February, right? And you know, President Biden is not looking great there. It's he's got a forty three percent approval rating and fifty two percent disapproval rating. That's right on par, basically, with where he is nationwide. But Trump's favorability rating has plummeted from somewhere in like the mid forties, his favorable rating last year, to thirty six percent now and 57% unfavorable. So Trump, who's inserting himself like in Wisconsin, is pressuring this investigation to keep going, et cetera, et cetera, is, has a 36% favorable rating in Wisconsin. That is desperate. And that's Marquette's polling. So it's, you know, it's their trend line, right? I'm not just comparing different polls here. Um, yeah, Ron, we've always yeah, said sorry. that if, if, it's a, if it's a referendum on Biden, we're in trouble. But if it's a Biden v. Trump, this is a perfect example of how that's yeah. a completely dif- different equation. They don't have to love Biden. They just, right. <laughs> but if it's, a, if it's a choice between Biden and Biden Democrats and Trump and Trump Republicans, right. And all these conspiracy theories, then in, in, in a lot of these sing- swing States, Democrats have a really, really decent chance, you know, of, of, because look, the economy is humming along. Inflation scares the heck out of people. But what if you had, 
inflation and an economy that wasn't humming along. That's what Republicans wanted at the federal level. When they voted against the American Rescue Plan, every single congressional Republican who voted against that voted against the aid that helped keep the small businesses alive, the you know funding that helped get everybody vaccinated, not everybody, but the people who wanted it vaccinated, made it easy for them to do so, gave them access to that those life-saving uh, drugs so that we could eventually start to like climb our way out of the pandemic hole. And, and recent polling shows that most Americans are really getting to the place where they think, yeah, you know, we, we might have things that come up. We, we're probably not entirely over this, but the worst of it is probably over. And we have the tools that we need to do to, you know, personally on a personal level to move past it. So in any case, so you've got that you've got Trump, who's abysmally low. But uh, Republican Senator Ron Johnson, who's also up for uh, who is up for reelection and is one of the key, you know, swing seats or could be has a favorable favorable rating of just 33 percent. Ooh, 33 percent for old Ron Johnson. Holy right. Crap. Yeah. And he's got and 45 percent. That's like Kirsten Cinema level. This is, yeah, right. These are his worst numbers in 10 years of Marquette polling. Right. So we're wow. uh, you know, we're he, that's that's a that's in vulnerable ter- territory. It's always tough to beat Deep. an incumbent. But yeah. that is it's always tough to beat an incumbent. But that isn't a vulnerable incumbent if there ever was one. And at the same time, can I just say and then uh, I'll let you do your thing. But. Um, incumbent right. Democratic uh, governor Tony Evers is faring relatively well as, in comparison to all those polling numbers. He got a 50 percent job approval and 41 percent disapproval. So he's nine points above water in that swing state in this environment. So sorry, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm listening. Uh, this is a great rundown. And those are really encouraging numbers for sure. Uh, Ron Johnson, a couple of years ago, literally spent 4th of July hanging out with Vladimir Putin in Moscow. So this is what Democrats have to work with. And I'm actually uh, interested to see if Ben actually has some ideas on how they're going to message just overall that election. Is that is he here? I think he's here. I think you bring him in. You you know, Ben. So you you bring him in. All right. My old friend, my my old friend, Ben Wickler. Uh, he's the chair of the Democratic Party and just an out, just an amazing activist. I think I've known you, Ben, since I started blogging, if I, if that's hard to believe. But Ben, thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure to be with you here today. And nice so, to meet you. Ben, yeah, and nice to meet you too. This is this is a thrill for me. So I've been I, I actually have been like for months being like, we got to get Ben Wickler on. <laughs> honestly. Seriously, so, like every week. Here you are. Here you are. <laughs> So um, and then I heard you on Pod Save America and I was like, we got to get Ben Wickler on any case. Anyway, so 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 here you are. So, uh, you know, let's um, I mean, there's so much to cover, but I will just say you did a post um, or your comms team did a post for Daily Coast. It did really in, in the in the wake of these elections in April, these local elections. Right. And it did really well. Um, and I just want to I want you to go ahead and give an overview of how these elections went, these local elections went, in your view. And then maybe we can dig into some some messaging and things like that. Absolutely. So Wisconsin had the biggest wave of local elections in the country of this year. It was on April 5th. There were no statewide candidates on the ballot, just school board candidates, county executives, county boards, city council, the, the, the folks who actually kind of do the work of making local government work. And traditionally, these are nonpartisan elections. There's no D or R next to anybody's name. And in many places, there never been a real partisan contest for these races. This time, the Republican Party decided to go all in. And they predicted and expected and wanted to have a red wave across the state. Right-wing talk radio hosts started having slates of local candidates on their shows and publishing lists of local candidates to support on their websites, which they would read on air. Republican Party, local Republican parties bought full-page, front-page ads listing all the candidates they endorsed and then you know, listing boilerplate Republican talking points about CRT and, and trans kids and, you know, Open borders. Critical race theory. Critical race theory. Trans kids. Sorry. Yep. All their all their hot button uh, attempts to divide and distract and, and demonize and turn people against each other. Um, they uh, not only had the Republican Party transferring money into local county parties and into local candidates' accounts, but they also had 
the kind of dark money operations you normally see in you know federal contests like the Uline family, which was the biggest funder of the Stop the Steal rallies and Ron Johnson's biggest donors. They're bill- giant mega billionaires. They were running television ads in Green Bay targeting the city council for supposedly uh, perpetuating the, the the stealing of the 2020 election for Biden and claiming that there was you know that the city council was involved in uh, in like what I think of as the big line, what they see as the crime of the century. This uh, is like the greatest of- hits of the Republicans' current. They threw <laughs> yes. everything at it. They threw it they threw all. all they did all the things, and they were they they. There was one school board candidate in Beloit in a district, you know, that had like a couple of thousand voters who had an eleven thousand dollar mail campaign targeting her with a distorted photo on the mailer and like all this stuff, and just a giant smear campaign funded by Diane Hendricks, who's another billionaire Republican donor, the, the wealthiest uh, self-made woman in the country, owner of ABC Home. And these are these are the, the biggest funders on the right who poured their work into taking over these local offices. And you can see their glee that Rebecca Clayfish, who's the leading Republican candidate for governor, Scott Walker's lieutenant governor, she endorsed dozens and dozens of these local candidates across the state and was knocking on doors for them. And as we saw this happening, our side decided we were going to fight back. And so, well, wait, we, what? <laughs> no, 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 wait, wait, don't say it. You didn't. I, I think, what, didn't you need, Ben, didn't you need a really mellow, low-key message about kitchen table issues? Isn't that what's just really super low-key? Maybe just ignore their attacks yeah. and focus on- Hide under the table? Yeah, I mean, you know. <laughs> If, if they're if they're punching us, the best thing to do is to power up as a ball. Right? That's <laughs> right. always the best way to win. Yeah, just you know, we. But I think that kind of aggressive campaigning turns voters off. So we really shouldn't engage in any kind of right. contest for these races. <laughs> <laughs> See, I told everybody this is not a typical Democratic well, Party person here we have on the show today. All right, so we, we how, did, how did Democrats? Yes, yeah, sorry. You, we were, oh, yeah. we're gonna fight back. Go ahead, Ben. So we uh, built out a team of, of the scale that we normally have in fall elections. And we wound up, the party wound up directly working with 276 local candidates across the state. And we would say to folks, I know that this has been a nonpartisan race in the past, but this time they're coming for you. And we, we have field organizers all over the state. We have our neighborhood teams that have been working in every statewide race since the spring of 2017, which can when knock doors, we can pull targeted universes of Democrats in your area. We can do digital ads. We can do mail. Um, independent groups got involved as well in, in dozens and dozens of races across the state. And uh, we went to bat. Some candidates, you know, they they had a personal commitment to being nonpartisan or they didn't want to do this. And I will say that they had a tougher time because they wound up being hammered. And there were some candidates who understandably, you know, they've never been involved in, a, in, in either party and they didn't want to be involved now. Then they saw what was coming at them and they wanted to get involved later on and asked in the final stretch. And it was a lot, it's a lot harder to win a race when you have, you know, 10 days before election day to prepare a campaign operation. But the candidates that, that kind of got on, on in, jumped into the fight fully, uh, we won a majority of those races. We won statewide 54% of the races that we engaged in, 147. We swept the elections for, for school board in uh, not just kind of blue cities like Eau Claire and La Crosse, but also Holman and Sparta, which are small Republican towns Whoa. where they had these far right slates that were running. And we fought back. And on the, the final weekend, I actually recorded a whole series of local digital ads that we ran that use the race class narrative uh, framework, which is to start with the shared value, then explain what Republicans are doing and why they're doing it. And then you know go to a call to come together and fight back against it. So the message was, we all want kids where every child, no matter uh, what they look like or where they live can thrive, but Republicans are demonizing teachers and parents and students, banning books and trying to divide us in order to advance their agenda of defunding public education. And we need to come back, reject these divisive tactics and elect people who actually believe in public schools so that our kids can have a chance at a better future. And then I'd name the candidates on our side and you know make the case. And we ran those targeting Democratic voters in school boards races all over the state. And the overwhelming share of the, the candidates in those races won those races because we were get, providing a frame for what the Republicans were doing and then you know, making that into an attack on something that actually unites our side completely, which is well-funded, good public schools. And this is this is the the deepest kind of 
division in Wisconsin politics, going back to Scott Walker a decade ago, attacking teachers and massively defunding public education. It's the Republicans' glass jaw, and we, it is something where we still have a major advantage, and we cannot do the Virginia thing of uh, effectively ceding public education to Republicans. So we just punched back on this stuff. And what? And I think one of the reasons, one of the thing, one of the keys to that is too, is the reason that Democrats have owned this issue for so long is because Democrats are known for known for wanting to fund education, and you know that was something I think that the Republicans in this like, you know, culture war that they're trying to push about, oh, you know, Democrats are trying to make you feel bad about being white, and Democrats are trying to indoctrinate your kids and whatever. It gets away from the fact that they're, they don't want to invest in education. I think that's one thing that gets lost in that debate if you don't say it. 100%, 100%. And we have to point it out. We have to say, why are they demonizing public schools? Because they want to defund public education and close these schools down. Every Republican politician in Wisconsin is in hock to the school privatization movement. And they are calling for you know giving every kid a, a voucher to take to a private school. And guess what? In rural areas, there aren't a lot of private schools that you can actually go to. So even, you know, right. this is an attack on public schools and urban areas, but it's even more doubly disastrous in rural areas as well. And it's profoundly unpopular. And the biggest Republican donors are all in, in lockstep supporting these attacks on public schools. So we need to take all their attacks and turn them into a counterattack on them on funding public schools, which is a deeply popular thing. We On the same day that there's this huge Republican effort to win these local elections, we passed the overwhelming share of school funding referenda across the state of Wisconsin, which typically happens around the country. And the, you know, building on that core identification, even if people are panicked about the state of education in general, they overwhelmingly support and like the schools that their kids go to and the schools in their local community. And it's sort of like the way people feel about members of Congress. And our side is pro schools and the other side is not. So this is, it's an area where we have a giant opportunity to, to punch back. And the Republican, you know, every single time, the Republican thing is to use the most divisive and incendiary and demonizing tactics to try to split people. And then as soon as they get power, they try to grab money out of public services that everyone relies on and shovel it to rich people. And that's the, that is the one thing that they do every single time. And explaining that that's their agenda and how we're gonna fight back against it is critical to being able to win. Then uh, last week on the show, we had our, our, our mutual friend, Jennifer Ancona Fernandez on to talk about messaging. And it strikes me how the parallel to what she was really urging Democrats to do and what you just said, you know, yourself just did is one, first you talk about what Democrats stand for, what our values are for. Two, as you, you point to the, to the villain, right? The Republican party and, and their values and how they're trying to undermine, you know, all the, everything that is good and wonderful. And then you have a hero, which is, you know, together we can come out, we can vote these people out and we can save education. We can. And it seems like you follow that. I don't know if you, you've been working with her or intuitively because, <laughs> you know, once you hear it, it makes a lot of sense. But part of this is you got our base out. And this yeah. is the big fear about November. Can we get our base out? You know, looking at the results of this of this, you know, weirdly timed election, almost probably designed to, mi to minimize public participation. What does that tell you about November? Does it, you know, does it give you hope? Do, do you think this, this success will carry over or is November gonna be a whole different electorate and you gotta just start from scratch and figure that out separately? So the, number, the total number of voters is very small, but here's the really striking thing. In our spring election, the last time we had a spring election with no statewide candidate on the ballot, with no state Supreme Court race or head of public construction race or whatever, was 2014. And that year, there were only 505,000 Wisconsinites who voted. This time, it was more than 940,000. It was an 86% oh, wow. from the last well, time. And Wisconsin there. hasn't grown that much in eight years. Right? No, it is this not. is not population growth. <laughs> <laughs> so so the, 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 the giant leap, and you could see that it wasn't the same leap everywhere. It was the places where there were contested elections. So Dane County, where I live, did not have major contested elections, and turnout was very low. It did not soar up. It was the places where we, both sides joined the fight that the numbers shot up. And that's what we're going to see in the fall. I think the turnout will be incredibly high. Now, in Virginia in 2021, Democratic turnout went up a lot, and Republican turnout went up even more compared to four years before. 
our job is to is to get folks into a fever pitch of energy. I mean, in a state like Wisconsin, you have to do persuasion and turnout. But frankly, there's often not a real difference in the in the message that does best for both of those things, because you have to do exactly what Jen Icona was talking about. You have to explain the race, what the other side is doing. You have to ground it in a shared value, and you have to have a hero that empowers voters to feel like they have the power to be able to make a difference. And if we if we do that in the fight to beat Ron Johnson and to reelect Governor Tony Evers, who is the, the key to protecting democracy in our, our state and our country, he has vetoed more than a dozen different election sabotage and voter suppression bills already. All those will become law if Republicans win the governorship. And Wisconsin was the tipping point state in both of the last two presidential yeah. elections. So you, you have to stop those bills from going through. And the governor is, is the key to making that happen. But we can do all of that if we turn out the Democratic voters we need to. And there were record Democratic turnout in 2018 and 2020. So it's not about getting someone who's a non-voter who's ever voted to vote, although we want to do that too. But it's critically to make sure that folks that got engaged during the Trump era stay in the fight. And we have to make clear in no uncertain terms to these voters that that everything that they, they voted for and fought for is absolutely on the line again in 2022. Yeah, you know, just before you came on, and you probably didn't see this because I know you scheduled us in and you had sort of a tight schedule, so we appreciate you making it. Um, but we we try to set the table just a little bit with some numbers. And, you know, from the Marquette Law School poll, um, also Trump sort of like getting involved and pressuring the assembly speaker there to like continue his, his decertification effort, all that stuff. But anyways, Ron Johnson was at a 33% favorability rating in that Marquette Law School poll. And I mean, is is he, I know it's it's always tough to beat an incumbent, but he's beatable, is he not? He is totally beatable. He is genuinely vulnerable because he has made himself repellent to most Wisconsin voters. And here's the thing that's, to me, just fascinating. So one, this kind of obvious thing about Johnson is that he is pushing the worst conspiracy theories. He's just a... a out-and-out propagandist disinformation machine. Um, he's, you know, as you said, he was in, in Moscow for July 4th. Uh, he was, he absolutely has carried water for Russian disinformation. He he actually privately went to Trump and was like, why are we holding up the weapons for Ukraine? And Ukraine was like, oh, it's fine. So then he was against the impeachment, even though he saw that this is a serious problem. He's willing to say and do even anything. He says mouthwash can kill coronavirus, blah, blah, blah. But... <laughs> The thing that, that moves the needle on top of it is the thing that uh, he kind of doesn't want to be in the headlines and is freaking out about. His signature legislative achievement was, was when Trump was pushing through his tax scam, Ron Johnson refused to vote for it until they added another tax cut that personally benefited Ron Johnson and his biggest donors. Wow. He insisted on, a, yeah, and like a lot, like the, the Uline family and Diane Hendricks, who I mentioned were funding the spring election just now. No, they put they, $20 million into his investing. election campaign. They're in investing into their own bottom line. I mean, this is not charity. That's exactly right. Guess how much those two, those three people, Richard and Liz Uline and then Diane Hendricks, guess how much they got, those three people in 2018 because of the tax cut that Ron Johnson personally put in? According to know. ProPublica. $50 million. I was going to say $30 million. Anyway. So who wins? More than $200 million in one oh, year. Oh, geez. We're not even, in the same, oh. not even in the ballpark. Oh, you my God. You know what? God. That's why Democrats are poor, Marcos. We don't think <laughs> big enough. We don't think we could have scammed $200 million <sighs> out. And that was like $30 million. Ah, oh, I'm a yeah. loser. Anyway, sorry. <laughs> yeah, and he, and he personally, after after he got the tax cut for his for pass-through company that, that he owns, which, you know, Normally, it's taxed as, as personal income if you own a pass-through company, but he made it its own classification, dropped the tax rate, which only affects the people at the top who are, you know, we're, we're paying a higher tax bracket. This is, uh, he personally cashed out, sold his company and doubled his net worth. And the like, it's just so directly self-serving and corrupt. And we are now, you know, we've run ads about this. We talk about this all over the place. He was finally asked at an event how do we respond to the charges that you, uh, by one of his supporters, how, you know, people are saying that you passed a tax cut and benefited yourself. How do we respond to that? And he said on camera, did I benefit? Yes. Did my donors benefit? <laughs> yes. But so did all these other businesses. And you, know, you should talk about that. And he's like, okay, thank you. I appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> what we've been saying. 
And he's on, he's responding to our attacks. He's on our turf. And that's exactly what you want. He does not have the discipline to change the subject into something that is going to benefit him. And in fact, his defense doesn't work at all. This is was called by the former head of the Joint Committee on Taxation, Congress's worst tax idea. It is so radically regressive. 61% of the, the benefit goes to the top 1% of people in our country. Uh, two thirds of the country has to share just 4% of the benefit. But the best thing is not to talk about the statistics. It's to talk about how he's lining his own pockets. Because whether you're a Democrat or Republican or independent, or you hate politics and think it's all cynical and corrupt, you just hate that kind of self-serving. Yeah, I think everyone can look around and be like, I don't think I got $200 million. <laughs> I don't remember getting that $200 gotta, gotta million. Gotta check my account. I gotta check my account to make sure, but. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't even get $1 million. What's hey, wrong with us? Hey, Ben. Yeah. So we're in a, Wisconsin is the, the almost the epitome of the 50-50 state, right? It is, it is, it is on a razor's edge. We are in a, political situation in this country where we're so partisanized that, you know, Matt Gates can be a child, you know, predator and, and Republicans are like, not all good with us as long as he votes with us. Do vote, are there, is there a slice of Wisconsin electorate that could be persuaded to not support Ron Johnson, even if they might be Republican, but they see, you know, that information, you see Ron Johnson literally say like, yeah, I benefited and the bad <laughs> cut off the, couldn't you actually move numbers that way? Or are we, is Wisconsin just so locked in partisanized that you're really more working on getting our base ginned up? Is so, there persuadable? There, so in 2018, we had Scott Walker running for a third term and Tammy Baldwin running for a second term. And one in 10 Wisconsin- And Tammy voters, Baldwin is a Democrat, just so people- a Democratic senator, yeah. Progressive Democratic senator Amazing. from Wisconsin. She's great. And one out of 10 Wisconsin voters voted simultaneously for Scott Walker and Tammy Baldwin that year. You. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I mean, great for so, Tammy Baldwin, but. Yeah, okay. no, I mean, she won a landslide and then Scott Walker lost by a hair's breadth. He lost by 1.1%. Right. It was a very high turnout year. And there were a ton of people who turned out, voted for the Republican for governor and then voted against the Republican for Senate. Oh, okay. There is a, there's a big, like, you know, supposedly ticket splitting is gone and, and swing voting is gone, but there's absolutely still a big enough group of both kinds of things to win statewide elections here. And the thing you have to remember, as you said, like four of our last six presidential elections have come down to less than one percentage point in Wisconsin. Yeah. 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 Elections are on a hair's breadth. So there are absolutely persuadable people enough to swing a statewide election. That said, the thing that Democrats have to remember is that a good persuasion message unites our side and divides the other. Persuasion messages are not the things that leave Democrats. You sound like full. Jennifer Ancona. <laughs> right, right. You know, I did, like good good persuasion messages also turn out Democrats, <laughs> and that's that's why I love this this message about Johnson's signature legislative achievement, giving himself a tax cut, because it's something that you know absolutely motivates Democrats to organize against him, and also divides Republicans about him. It's not something that like puts up a middle finger to the Democratic base in order to try right. to grab Republican votes. That kind well, of messaging demobilizes us and we need to be mobilized to win this election. Well, so speaking of which, I, I saw in your post that you did on Daily Coast, the post-election uh, post that you did, that um, that Democratic performance in the conservative, conservative Milwaukee suburbs relative to eight, 2018 numbers was was relatively strong. So, you know, I'm these these are this is a conservative. You're talking about conservative uh, suburbanites who, you know, who who actually voted for the pro, you know sort of the I don't know if you want to call them Democratic candidates but the the pro education candidates they voted against the Republican onslaught that you talked about at the beginning of the of the show so it, those would seem like the type of people that can go for this message. So the interesting thing in the, in the Milwaukee suburbs, a lot of suburbs around the country have turned Democratic. Milwaukee suburbs have largely not turned Democratic, but they've become less Republican. And so Republicans are trumpeting that they won you know, school board elections, they won judgeships in the Milwaukee suburbs, you know, in these areas. But if you look at the share of the vote that they won, uh, there's, this is, it's extremely encouraging for Democrats. Uh, we broke 40% in the, in the Whoa. key, uh, in Waukesha County, in the key judicial race that was, that was taking place in the, the whole district around Milwaukee. And if, you know, if, 
like this is better than Biden did. It's better than Tony Evers did in twenty in twenty eighteen. If we can hold that kind of margin in what has been the heart of Republican territory, then we're in very strong shape in the November elections. And there was a lot like Fox News Channel did a whole segment about how Republicans won the school board elections in Waukesha. Republicans are supposed to win big yes. elections like Waukesha. <laughs> and you know, that they also I'm, win Wyoming. Yeah, yeah, segment yeah. on Wyoming. Like, <laughs> that, that's what that is historically. That that is what it's been. It's, that has been the heart of their their kind of stronghold. And the Democratic Party there. If you talk to the Democratic Party chair of Waukesha, Matt Moreno, um, he's like energized by what he just saw. The, he just texted me a photo of more than two hundred people at their local county party meeting last week, and they're they're on fire and they're organizing. And they know that if they close the margins, even you know, by a couple of percentage points, that opens up the door to statewide victory. So. There's an effort, I think, by the by the GOP to spin this as a year where they have all the momentum and the energy. But the, the reality is, I think in part because of January 6th, there's a real sense among Democratic activists that everything's on the line again in this midterm election. It's not the sense that we, we can be complacent because we've won. And that kind of base energy is turning into the kind of organizing that often focuses on local issues in local communities that allows us to win these races that Republicans think that they can just grab. And that we're going to need that in fall. These are going to be you know, we don't, we, these are going to be a lot of kind of state specific races, the, the Ron Johnson and the, the governor's races. We'll be talking a lot about Wisconsin stuff, uh, but we have an opportunity to shoot our turnout up and, you know, persuade some of those folks that are up for grabs and, and win in races that in a midterm with a democratic president are supposed to be safe Republican races. I think we can win a lot of these. So Ben, this is, this, this is all the time we have. But actually, we have a little bit more time, and, and I want you to let people know how they can help you and Wisconsin Democrats and candidates. Like, What can they do to help lead you guys into victory this November, given how important Wisconsin is to so many, so much? <laughs> I, this is my favorite question. The first thing for <laughs> folks to do, wisdems.org, W-I-S-D-E-M-S. Dot org slash donate and become a monthly donor and slash volunteer and become a volunteer for our work. We're going to spend this whole year calling folks who voted absentee in 2020, making sure they get absentee ballots for the fall elections. Now we're going to spend this whole year mobilizing, building neighborhood teams across the state of Wisconsin who can knock on doors and talk to folks in their communities about the stakes in the election in November and monthly donors help us hire organizers early so that we're not just bringing people on at the last second, we're hiring actual organizers who build local teams led by volunteers. This is the Obama model. We do it on a year-round basis in the state of Wisconsin. And those teams then mobilize volunteers who know their communities, who have friends who live in the apartment buildings, will let them in, who know where you have to drive because there's a half-mile driveway in the in the local you know, the farmhouse next door. People who get their turf and can actually make the right kinds of connections to mobilize those voters. We are in the midst of a hiring wave. So the last thing I'll say is wisdoms.org slash jobs. If you're watching right now, listening right now, and you'd like to work with us, please come on and apply. We have an actual system where we look for the best people for the jobs, not just people who know someone. So we would love for your folks to, to apply and join our team. And then wisdoms.org slash donate, wisdoms.org slash volunteer. We will put you to work to win in the state that tips the entire country. And there's a lot of people in, in Illinois and Minnesota that can also, you know, come on and help, I assume, right? On the ground organizing. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, if you're out of state, then we'd like you to call Democrats and remind them to get an absentee ballot. If you are in state and, and, and nearby, then we want you to come and knock on doors and, and talk to folks, you know, to, to make sure they know what's up and to ask them questions and learn about who we need to mobilize to turn out in the fall. Uh, there's something for everyone to do. And we have a giant voter protection operation. So if someone's an attorney or if they want to help recruit poll observers, we can put them to work too. go to vote.wisdoms.org. Uh, this is an all hands on deck moment. And if we put all hands on deck, we're going to win. Do you think there's any chance that Mark Meadows is going to vote in your state? Because he <laughs> has, likes to vote a lot of different places. And I just wondered, have you run across anything from Mark Meadows or no? You know, no. there were uh, three different races in the spring election that came down to a literal coin toss, although in one case they pulled the name out of a hat. And I think at least two of those races, Mark Meadows did vote. And so we would have won two more local offices. Then, so keep an eye out for that guy. You, you heard it first right here, breaking news on Daily Coast. All right. That was a lie. That was a joke. Ben Wickler, Wisconsin Democratic Party, WizDems, Dems with plural, right? WizDems.org slash jobs, uh, donate, and volunteer, depending on 
which one? Maybe all three. Maybe all three. <laughs> ben, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I'm I'm definitely really energized and excited about November, and and I'm I'm really grateful for the work you and all the great volunteers are doing in Wisconsin. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on, and thanks to everyone watching and listening for being part of this fight. Thanks, Carrie. We are I, out of time, but I want to go vote. I want to go vote right now. I want to go. Yes. Vote. Yes. I don't want to wait anymore. This is exciting. We can win. And it's amazing, though. You saw Jen and Kona's what we learned last week about right. what messages work. I, I suspect that Ben, you know, has worked with Jen. And we're all, you know, I said, you know, we're, we all came out of the same place. We all know each other. And uh, it, it was perfect. Right. It was perfectly aligned. It's it's what our values are as Democrats. It's identify the the uh, villain and what Republicans are doing. And then the hero of the story is us. It's, it's voters. It's activists. It's people getting involved in our democracy to save it from the Republican Party that wants to turn the United States into Putin's Russia. That is the bottom line. So that's all the time we have today, unfortunately. So I just want to thank everybody. We reached a million listens this last month for the first time. And that is a you know testament to all the amazing community that, that we built at Daily Coast and beyond that are working towards what Ben is doing, and that is saving democracy by getting people engaged and active and involved in their democracy. And I couldn't be more grateful and thankful that you are part of that fight with us. I wouldn't want anybody else. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to the thanks to Ben also for being our guest today. He's very very busy saving with you know democracy in Wisconsin. So it was, it was appreciative of him for coming on. Thank you, Carrie, for being the amazing co-host as always. Uh, thanks to the entire uh, brief team behind the scenes, Walter and Kara and Carolyn and, and Dorothy. Carolyn and yeah. Dorothy, right? And uh, I think I'm not missing any. Oh, and Paul. Paul's oh, been doing Paul, some great right. work. Paul. Yeah, Paul's no, we got a whole now working doing yeah, great stuff. Right. It's we're, we're it up. Yep, yep. So thanks to everybody at the Daily Coast site. Thanks to you again for joining us. Um, I hope you're as energized after this episode as I feel. And Carrie, I see you glowing. So I think you as well. Thanks so much. See you all next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at Daily Coast. See you next week.